My Father, we now open your word that you've given to us. You've preserved it through the ages. You have given it to us for your glory and for our good. To teach us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to exhort us, to convict us, to warn us, to give us wisdom. And so we know that your word contains the fullness of all that you intended it to contain in the revelation of your glory and your redemption and of Christ. It's everything that we need to know for life and for godliness. And we pray now that by your spirit we would see that and that we would hear it and that we would understand and that we would be encouraged. Particularly, O Lord, as we consider even now what we cannot see with our physical eyes yet, but what we see with the eyes of faith as you've revealed it in your word, namely your risen glory. Your present glory at the right hand of the Father for us. Your future glory as you'll return in power and majesty to establish righteousness in your kingdom on this earth and to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. So give us faith, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, open your Bible up one more time to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation chapter 1, we... Taking a few weeks break from 1 Peter, last week we uh, began uh, what was meant to be one message turned into two, surprise, surprise, Um, but we will finish it up this morning as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And we'll be looking primarily again at verses 17 through 18, 17 through 18. This is, as you'll remember, a word of the risen Christ to the Apostle John. The Apostle John, who is at the time of this writing, banished on the island of Patmos for his testimony and his witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, who leaned on Jesus' breast while at the table during the Last Supper, while he was present here on earth, is now the Apostle John who falls at his feet when he's in the presence of the majesty of the risen Lord, the risen Christ. And Jesus is giving this, as he tells us in these opening verses, this vision of himself before he gives his word to these seven churches, because he is establishing for John and for us the glory out of which he speaks, the glory of the one who is reminding these churches that he is aware of their deeds, he's aware of their suffering, he is aware of what they are enduring, of what his church will endure, and what his plans and promises are for them and for this world in the end. And he's reminding us that he is then the one who has the sovereign glory to make these promises and to bring them about. The last time the world... Saul, Jesus, outside of those whom he appeared to during the 40 days of his resurrection, was crucified and hanging on the cross, weak and bloodied. But the picture that we get of Christ here is far different and far more glorious and one that we need. For even the church of God seems to be confused oftentimes about who Christ is seems to be confused or unable to come to grips with the reality of his person and of his glory. 
Some present Christ in a desire to protect him from having any involvement with the evil in this world. Present Christ and and God as, as sorry for it. And indeed, God is grieved over the reality of sin. But they want to so remove him from any part in it that they present him as sorry and concerned about sin as we are. One who has either not the ability or has limited his ability to be powerless over the course of evil in its details. One popular theologian, Greg Boyd, who is a proponent of what's called the open... uh, Uh, the openness of God, says this, the final type of power, this is actually a summary from one of his uh, sermons. He says this, the final type of power, he's describing uh, Christ's power, God's power. The final type of power is agape power. This type of power seeks to serve, love, and make others greater than oneself. It is other-oriented power and is not what the world thinks power is. In fact, it seems like we're giving power away when we serve others. Jesus shows us that God lives and dies in this type of power. God could use Neanderthal power, that's something he mentioned earlier about just clubbing somebody over the head and dragging them off, to subjugate the world to his will. However, God gives up his power to show his love to his people. In other words, his idea of Christ is that in order to show his love, in order to be authentic and real, gives up his power of sovereignty so that he can feel the hurt along with everyone else and respond and just help people to see the good he's trying to do in the circumstance. Some want to preclude Christ from any sense of judgment at all. He's only tender and gentle with sinners. And so the idea of eternal judgment, the idea of God bringing about judgment even in this world, is to them anathema. And so they they come up with ideas like annihilationism. Well, there's no real punishment for sinners. There's simply maybe a temporary punishment, but ultimately there's just going to be going out of existence. Why? Because my God would never do that. That's not the God I serve. The God I serve is a God of love. And a God of love would never execute that kind of judgment. Some want to present Christ as the object of divine child abuse because of his suffering and death on our part. And again, these are all within the Christian church. One says this, two theologians, liberal theologians, says this, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence, perpetuated by God towards humankind, but born by His Son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. So these are those who claim to be Christians describing Christ. And the problem with all of these descriptions is that it is an attempt to make Christ into our own making. An image and an idea of Christ that we can live with and that we feel less less threatened by. A kind of Christ that we can be much more comfortable with. But the problem with all of those and any other aberration of the person of Jesus Christ is that's not who he is. It's not the reality of who he is. And praise God, that's not who he is. We can be very thankful that that's not who he is. In a tragedy, 
And in the confusion of this world and in the confusion of our trials and in the weight and the feel of loss and of the effects of sin and the consequences of sin in this world, the last thing that we need and the last thing that we want is a God who is just as sad and sorry and disappointed as we are. That's the last thing we want. That brings no comfort to our souls. We don't want a God who is like us, but we want a God who is transcendent in his glory. We want a God who is sovereign. Our hearts long for a God who is in absolute control over his creation, who is on his throne, ruling over all things made by his hands. We want a God who has this power wrapped up in perfect goodness and holiness and righteousness and love toward his own. When you feel the pangs of your sin and you go before the throne of God, you want to know the eternal reality of him who died in your place, who lives as your high priest and whose life you share. And you want to know that whatever pain and tragedy you're going to and whatever confusion and evil seems to rise in this world is under the sovereign hand of that God. And this is the Christ that is revealed to us on the pages of Revelation in our passage this morning. This is the Christ who revealed himself to John, who's revealing himself to us today through the written word and by his spirit. He's a sovereign Christ, a Christ of glory, a Christ of majesty, a Christ who is ruling over the nations, a Christ who is subjecting by the power of the Father, or the Father who is subjecting all things under his feet. Read with me beginning in verse 9, and we'll read down to verse 18. For context, we'll focus primarily on verse 18 this morning. As John reveals to us and writes down for us at the command of Jesus Christ, this image of Christ who is, who was, and who is to come. Verse 9, says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars." And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Tremendous, tremendous vision that Christ lays before us here. And let me just remind you of what we considered last week. First, we noticed that Christ is the sovereign Lord of glory. He is the sovereign Lord of glory. 
He is now being seen in his risen glory. The transfiguration was a foretaste of that. You'll remember that his clothes and his garments changed. He was seen speaking with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was a foretaste of his coming kingdom and of his glory. But now it's seen by John in an even greater sight of the majesty of the one who died and rose again. The true nature of Christ here as the risen Christ, as him who in all of his glory as both Messiah and as divine, as God, is here laid before John and for us. And Jesus told... His disciples, when he was walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory? The suffering has passed, and now this is the state to which his incarnation ultimately pointed. This glorious state of him as the risen Messiah. And there's at least three reasons that he wants us to grasp these. And I'm just going to remind us here. Why would he take the time for us to see this glory? One is because we do not physically see Christ. He says he's present with the churches, but he's not visible to their eyes. But what he wants us to remember, that he is very well aware with eyes like flames of fire, omniscient, seeing everything, that he is knowing, seeing, evaluating, judging, speaking, and ruling over his churches. That's the Christ who is. He wants us to see, secondly, that the greatest reality before men is not what is seen, but what is not seen. The greatest reality before the church and the greatest reality before the world is not what can be beheld with the eyes, but what God reveals to us is true indeed and the real reality behind the things that we see with our eyes. Namely here, that Christ is the one ruling over the nations and ruling over the church. He wants to see, thirdly, To encourage us that Jesus Christ is our high priest, our king, and our Messiah. And we are eternally secure in him. This is the sovereign Lord of glory. Secondly, he wants us to see that he is the sovereign Lord over history. And this is contained primarily in that statement, I am the first and I am the last. This means then that he not only stands above his creation, he rules over it. He is the first and the last and the one who rules everything in between. And again, he wants us to at least see three things here. That Jesus is Lord over the suffering of his people. Remember, the church is both suffering. He says that, to, for example, to Smyrna. You're going to have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. There are going to be the martyrs that come out of the time of tribulation beyond number who are beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. There is even now the suffering of his church. He's reminding them that he is the one who is sovereign even over the evil that he himself will allow and has ordained against his people. He's the one who gives authority to Satan and the beast ultimately to execute the wickedness that they will on earth. He is the one who ultimately allows his people to be tested and thrown into prison. He stands as Lord over it. Lord over it. And he also is Lord over the church who is, in many of these cases, even though demonstrating elements of faithfulness, also is demonstrating elements of rebellion. He's reminding them that he is the one who stands over his Lord 
and will bring all deeds into account. He's Lord over the rise of evil. He's Lord over suffering. And he's the Lord who will bring about his promises. And then he says next that he is the Lord of redemption. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of history and the Lord of redemption. He says, I am the first and I am the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am alive forevermore. This reveals him as sovereign Lord over redemption. He says, behold, look at what he says. I am the one, I am the first and the last and the living one. Again, each one of these descriptions as well, magnifying his glory as one who is equal to the Father, who is equal to God. Living one is a title for God himself. And Jesus applies it to himself here. I am the living one. But then he says, behold, I was dead. I was dead, though he is alive now. Why does he say that he is dead? Why does he say that? He says this to affirm his own death, to affirm it. He was not a, it, was not a, it was not a vision that they saw of him dying on the cross. It was not some, it was not some uh, portrayal that wasn't faced or didn't encompass reality. He was, in fact, the one who was dead. It was a real death. This is confirmed over and over in the scriptures. He was dead. This is an encouragement to those who are dying and will die in the Lord. He died. He tasted it. He knows. He himself bore the very thing that he's allowing to come on to come to his people. His death was real, but his death was also atoning. It was a death with a purpose. It was a death ordained by God for the redemption of his people. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14. It says this in Hebrews 2, 14. Therefore, since the children of Children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil and might free those who fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. His death was real. His death was atoning. His death was sin bearing. His death was to produce a final blow to the reality of death. For his people so that they might not fear it. That's why he can say, do not be afraid. Not only to encourage him as one who won't be destroyed in the presence of the Holy One. But as one who has been freed from the fear of death. One who's been freed from the fear of death. Because Christ has borne it. The death which men fear is both the physical death which comes about at the end of this world that can come about at any moment, the fear of death that is the eternal death and separation from Christ. He's saying, I was died the first death, the physical death, so that you might not have to fear any death. I've overcome it. But he's also saying this to remind us that his death was not an accident of history. It wasn't a tragedy of history. It was a death that was planned. It was a death that was ordained, as we read or mentioned earlier in Ephesians 1. 
His death wasn't a tragedy in the sense that it was something that could have been prevented. It wasn't a disruption of the eternal purposes of God. It was, in fact, a planned death. It was an intentioned death. It was a determined death and an ordained death. And this is the idea of sovereignty. Let me just remind you of a couple of verses. Peter, when preaching to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, says, This man, Jesus... The Nazarene was attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst as you yourselves know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In other words, his death, though at the hands of godless men, though appearing to be or place him as a victim, was in fact the purpose of God to accomplish his purpose. He was, is the sovereign Lord, and he was dead. But it was a death that was completely under his control, and that's, that's the point of mentioning this. In fact, let me just give you one more. In John chapter 10, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I was dead. John, you saw that I had died. The whole nation saw that I had died. But that is not the end. That death was purposeful. That death was temporary. And the, the emphasis here is, though I was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore. And here, of course, he's affirming his resurrection life. He is the one who died, yes, but his death, though atoning, was temporary. And he is the one who could not be held by death because he is the living one. Death could not hold him. It could not hold him. And it could not hold him because he is the living one who has the attribute of life in himself, which is something that belongs to God alone. He doesn't simply possess life, he is life. Just listen to a few other passages. He says in him, Colossians 1.17, all things hold together. All things hold together. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. John 1, 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Colossians 3, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be, be revealed with Him in glory. He was dead before the eyes of men, but he is the living one, the living Christ, who was sovereign over his death, who was sovereign in his life, who was sovereign in the resurrection, and who is sovereign over his people now. And so the contrast is this. The death that he died was once for all. It was temporary. But the life that he lives, he lives to God as the God-man and our Messiah for eternity. And this is really good news. This is really good news. And his emphasis here is not so much on the past event of the resurrection, but his emphasis here is, look again, is on the fact that he is alive now and forevermore. He is alive now and forevermore. 
It is that he is living, not that he simply rose back on some day 2,000 years ago, but that he is now the living Lord who is ruling over his church. He says forevermore. Literally, it's ages of ages. He's emphasizing here his eternality. The permanence of his role as mediator. The permanence of the promise that he is the king who will reign forever and ever. Matter of fact, he'll use this phrase many times. In verse 6 he says, Behold, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has an eternal glory. An eternal authority. In 5.13, those gathered around the throne will worship him and say, Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. He is the eternal one of glory. He is the eternal one of authority. He has an eternal reign that he will bring about on this earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. He has an eternal reign, an eternal authority, an eternal glory. He's the one who reigns over eternal judgment. In chapter 20, the devil and those who deceived him were thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's also the one, because he is the one alive forevermore, that can guarantee the promise that one day there will no longer be any night. There will have no need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine us and we will reign forever and forever with him. So the encouragement here is that he lives and he reigns eternally and because of that we have the eternal promise of the forgiveness and assurance of our sins and to be with him forever. John 11.25, Jesus said, He who believes in me shall never die. Never die. Even to pass through the veil of physical death is to do so in full and complete union with the one in whom our life is encompassed. It is to do so as never to lose fellowship and never to lose the joy of the nearness of Christ. For the believer, it is simply entrance into a fuller experience of the life that we already have, the unhindered experience of the eternal life possessed on earth, but known in greater fullness when we are with him. The reason that his ability to say that he is alive forevermore is the promise and the reality that's behind the songs that we sing. Listen to this. You know these words. He says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea, 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 a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. 
with Christ my Savior and my God. And this is what his life means for us. It is not simply an affirmation that indeed he did rise from the dead. It is an affirmation that says right now if you know Christ, your life is forever bound with him. It is a life that cannot be taken away. It is a life that through whatever turmoils come to you in this world is secured. It is a life that was given and is ordered and is sustained by the risen Christ himself and the eternal purposes of God. It is a life that comforts us in our loneliness. It is a life that assures us in our sin that he stood in our place. It is a life that assures us in the doubt and the confusions of this world that in fact we are one with him. It is a life that tells us that the promise of the resurrection will come about because he who died was raised and lives. Matter of fact, Paul tells us that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So what does it mean? What does it mean to say that he was dead and he is alive forevermore? It means that if you're a Christian, this is the very promise on which you base your confidence about your salvation today, tomorrow, and in the future and in eternity. It means that your sin has been atoned for. That your forgiveness is a settled reality. That your guilt has been removed at the cross. That you have been reconciled and your life is hidden with God. It means that because he lives, you can have confidence in trials, confidence in death, confidence in life to live for his glory. It means because he lives, you know that you also will present yourself to this living one. And so you want to live in a way that is pleasing to him. It means because he lives in the sovereign and redemption, you can have confidence of his ability and willingness to save forever those who come to him. It's a tremendous promise. I am alive forevermore. And his life is our life. His life is our redemption. His life is our hope. So the question is, in one, do you have this confidence? Do you have this confidence? Do you see the reality of his life and his sanctifying love in you? Do you see the reality of his indwelling spirit in you? Have you passed out of death into this life? that's, That's the question that is most pressing on us. Does the fact that he is the living one and that you are attached to this living one demonstrate itself? And and that's an important question because of what he says next as well. I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the sovereign Lord over redemption. He's the sovereign Lord who will bring his people through the same suffering he did to an appointed end of glory and joy because he did it in our stead. But he's also the one who stands as Lord over judgment. And that's the meaning of the second statement. I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. He has them right now. They're in his possession. Not Peter, not the Pope, but the living Christ. And what does he mean by death and Hades? Death and Hades here, interestingly, 
given the idea, they're, they're, throughout Scripture, they're personified at times. And what that simply means is that they're given attributes of uh, personhood, of intention, and of power. They're also marked out here as real places, real places where real people are, even right now. They're often lumped together. In Job 38, 17, he says, Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more are the hearts of men? Psalm 19, 913, You lift me up from the gates of death, that is, from the edge of death, from the entrance into death. In Psalm 107, they drew near to the gates of death. In Isaiah 38, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived from the rest of my years. And all of those are simply illustrating this, that death is a reference here to that disembodied state of those who no longer exist in this world. It's that separation from soul and body, but it also carries the idea of judgment. Death is the result of sin, death physically, death spiritually, and ultimately what he'll deal with at the end, eternal death, the second death. What does he mean by Hades? Hades is a common term in the Septuagint. You remember the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint translates the word, the Hebrew sheol, which is simply a general term. Hades translates the word sheol, which is a general term that designates the place of these disembodied dead. And Hades is actually in the Old Testament referred to as the place of the dead for both the righteous and the unrighteous. There's not a distinction. It's simply the place of the netherworld, the afterworld. In the intertestinal period, the term for Hades developed and came to be understood as having two compartments. One for the righteous and one for the unrighteous, where they were both kept in their own place. However, in the New Testament, this term is almost exclusively, there's one exception, used negatively to refer to the immediate place of torment where the wicked go after they die. It's what will be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the age, death and Hades. The one exception is actually found in Acts 2.27, quoting from Psalm 16, in which David prophesies that God will not abandon the soul of Christ in Hades, and that is not a reference to him going there after his resurrection to proclaim release to the dead, as though he, he went and uh, was in Hades for a little while and then released. He's simply there referring to Christ leaving this world and going to that place of death. The fact that he really died, but that death could not hold him. But most often, Hades is pictured again as a place of, a place of judgment for the unrighteous. A place, where, a place where they are held. Let me just read this one reference. This is at the great white throne judgment. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. There again, the holding place, a real place, a locality, as it were, containing real people. When he says that death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, it is to say that that place of temporary holding of punishment that they, in which they were awaiting this final act of judgment is brought to an end and they are brought up from the dead and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And there's verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Jesus here has the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys and the power of life and of judgment. The keys speak of authority. They speak of power. It is to say that he is absolutely sovereign over both of these things. And the emphasis here is on his divine nature. He's, he's, he's here pictured as in the unique glory of man. He is the Messiah. But the emphasis strongly lies on his display of divine equality within the Godhead. He's equally sharing the divine glory and the sovereignty of the Father. To have authority over life and death and judgment is a divine prerogative and it belongs to the risen Christ. And that's the emphasis here. He's standing here as sovereign Lord. He's the one who with the Father is judgment. As a matter of fact, he said in John 5 that all judgment has been given to him by the Father. And it's Jesus' right by, in a double right, or it's Jesus' right to judge by double right. It's his to judge because he is the God who brought all things into existence and sustains all things, and all things are sustained through him. And it's his right as the Messiah who redeemed all things and is the king over them. This is why when it's time to bring about the judgment, John is standing before the throne and weeping greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And then one of the elders who were before the throne said to him, stop weeping, behold, the lion, this is his, this is his role as Messiah, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seven seals. That's his divine right, not only because he is the one through whom all things came, in whom all things hold together, but he has the divine right and authority over death and Hades as the one who conquered them both and rules over them as Lord. It speaks here of his authority. It speaks of his authority. It's his authority even over the demonic realm, which is particularly important to understand in light of the judgments that are coming. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened, and so forth. He has the key over those who demons, the authority over the demons even now being kept in their proper place until the time when they'll be unleashed. He has the key over Satan's own prison in which he'll be thrown. Listen to this. And then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, chapter 20, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Here, this divine authority to take hold of the dragon and the serpent of the old, who is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years and to be thrown into the abyss and shut up and sealed over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed, is an authority that was given to this angel, a servant of Christ, who holds the key and the ultimate authority for all of these things. He's the one who has the authority over death, over demons, over Satan, over evil, over judgment. This is the sovereign Christ. This is the sovereign Christ who is Lord over all, Lord of heaven and of hell. And just listen to how Scripture defines this kind of authority of God that's here ascribed to Christ. In 1 Samuel 2.6, The Lord kills 
and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Deuteronomy 32.9 See now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Christ has that authority. You don't have any authority in your life. I don't have any authority in my life. Christ has the authority over our life. We don't determine when you die and when you live. Christ determines that. He has the authority of life and he has the authority of death. Psalm 139. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book are all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Christ holds that authority. The reality of life, you're being brought into this world and the reality of death, you're being taken out of this world are both completely under the sovereign hand of Christ. He has the authority of death. He has the keys of life and of death of all things. And to say this means this, that we are not to fear. We're not to fear. He tells us again to this church at Smyrna. He says, I read this earlier, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why? Because him who rules over all things, him who has the keys of death and Hades... Reminds them that, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so you'll be tested, you'll have tribulation, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life, because I am the living one. Don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. He who has the keys of death is the one sovereign over your death. He is the one who controls it. You will not die one day before God has determined. The safest place to be is in the will of God and serving him wherever you are. He's the one who ultimately then will abolish death. In 21.4, he says this. Speaking of the future, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne, again, his authority. Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, for right, for these words are faithful and these words are true. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it is death that is the last enemy to be defeated. So when he tells us that he is the one who has the keys over death and over Hades, he's saying this in part to encourage them to say, look, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your death. I am the one who stands sovereign over it. Be faithful to the end. Be faithful unto death. His enemies, however, should fear. It's also a warning to us and to all that he who has the power over death, while it's an encouragement to those who know him because he's defeated death on our behalf, because we can have confidence that death is merely entrance into the fullness of his life. But for those outside, his having the keys of death should be a fearful experience. Listen this. He says in verse 8 of chapter 6, or 7 and 8, these are the seals that are being broken. He says, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. They are an authority 
to judge. He says in verse 6 of chapter 9, in that time when there's this demonic, demonic exercise of suffering on those who are on the earth. He says, and in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. Right? Why? Because Christ is the one who has keys of death. He's the one who has the keys of death and Hades. It's not the prerogative of men. In this case, they'll seek death, those who are suffering in their rebellion against Christ. And he says, they will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Why? Because Christ is the one who determines that. He is the one who determines that. And how theologians like Greg Boyd and others can fit that into their theology of God is only love and would never punish is beyond me. You have to abandon the authority of Scripture. Christ stands sovereign over death and over judgment. And it's a warning to both those inside and outside the church as well. Listen to what he says to the message of Philadelphia in chapter 3. He says, And to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, He who is holy, who is true, has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He is the sovereign one. It's a warning as well. And again, the reality is to those who don't know His saving grace, should have a fear of death. If you are not in Christ, the fear of death is the most natural and reasonable response to your situation. You should fear death. You should fear him who has the keys of death and Hades. It's right because the fall into the hands of the living God is a terrifying thing, Hebrews 10. And it should remind you that whatever confidence you have in this life that emboldens you in the rejection of the gospel is a false confidence. You don't have that authority over your life of when you live and when you die. Christ brings that about. And so to fear death is sane. It's reasonable and it's proper for those who are yet unbelieving. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, some of you are familiar with that. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, New England pastor, actually, you all know, not too far from here, uh, was explaining this reality of how the unbeliever, those who are outside of the true grace of God, should view their situation. And remember I said earlier, the most important question we have is, do we know this life of the living one? Because here's the situation outside of that life. Explaining the statement in Deuteronomy 32, 25, their foot shall slip in due time. Let me read to you a portion of the sermon. It also implies, this is, Jonathan Edwards. It also implies that they are always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. Just as he who walks in slippery places is able, is always liable to fall, he cannot foresee from one moment to the next whether he will stand or fall. When he does fall, it is sudden and without warning. This is also expressed in Psalm 73, 18 through 19. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, How they are brought to desolation is in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. The only reason they have not fallen already is that God's appointed time has not yet come. The text says that when their appointed time does come, their foot shall slip. Then by their own weight they will fall. They will be left to fall. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And at the very instant he does, they will fall into destruction. 
A man standing on the slippery slope at the edge of a pit cannot stand unassisted. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. From these words, I would insist on this. Nothing keeps wicked people out of hell for a single moment except the mere pleasure of God. And by the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, which is not hindered or restrained by anything. It is no security to the wicked for one moment that they are in no apparent danger of dying soon. It is no security for the natural man that he is now healthy or that he does not foresee how he might suddenly be taken by some accident, though his present circumstances pose no visible danger. The long and varied history of humanity disproves the assumption that we are not on the very brink of eternity itself. And that unseen and unexpected ways that people suddenly leave this world are too numerous to imagine. The unconverted walk over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge. And there are countless places on that bridge that are too weak to bear their weight. These places go unseen. The arrows of death fly unnoticed at high noon. The sharpest eyes cannot spot them. God has so many unfathomable ways of taking wicked people out of this world and sending them to hell that he does not need miracles or unnatural causes to do so. In other words, God is absolutely sovereign over the life and the death of men. And so for those outside, those who are going a large portion of this book of Revelation is going to be taken then with those who rebel against his sovereign authority... And will put their hope in false confidences and finally learn that there's only one who has the power of life and of death and judgment, namely the risen Christ. There is a graphic illustration of this. I just want to mention it to you. In 1 Kings chapter 22. We're not going to read that whole passage, but in 1 Kings chapter 22, God's prophet Micah predicts the death of the king Ahab, the king of Israel. And Ahab basically just ignores these warnings, confident in his own schemes. And he goes out into battle, which God had warned him about. He ignores the prophet, seeks to defy God's prediction. And so he goes out into battle and he disguises himself as he heads out into battle to help protect and preserve his life. Listen to what happened. He says this. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. So when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in the joint of armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. And he died in his chariot. And he died at evening, and the blood from the wound ran to the bottom of his chariot. What is the point? The point is that Christ alone has this authority. He has it as God. And when God has determined to execute his judgment, he will bring it about in his own way, at his own time, for his own purposes. It cannot be 
escaped. And so why is this then a warning? Why is this a warning? Well, it's obvious. It's a warning, one, to the disobedient who are in the church. That's going to comprise to at least six of these churches. Those who are playing with sin, who take sin lightly. It is a warning to say that he who holds the keys of death and of Hades will hold you to account. For those who are outside of Christ and know that you have not in your heart yet submitted to him. You know that you doubt whether you belong to Christ or you know for sure that you have not yet believed. This is a warning to say that you do not know how much time you have to believe. That Christ is sovereign over your death. You're not kept safe by your own devices. You're not kept safe by your good health. You're not kept safe by careful watching yourself. Christ alone is the one that holds these keys. And so it's a warning. But it's also, again, a comfort. Because it means this. It means this. That if you are a believer in Christ, your life is not ever in danger of being taken one second beyond the time that he's ordained. So be faithful again to, unto death. Be faithful unto the end. Know that he has defeated death for you and has removed the sting of death. And we can say then with Paul, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And this is the majesty of Christ, is the sovereign one. He is the Christ of glory. He is a Christ who is sovereign over history. He is a Christ who is sovereign over redemption. He is a Christ who is sovereign over judgment. He is the Christ whom we serve and whom we trust. And he's the Christ we remember in this table. He's the Christ we remember in this table. And by his own command, by his own command... By his own purposes, these elements that we'll introduce in just a moment are his symbols to remind us that this Christ who is described here by John, this Christ who is sovereign, this Christ who is Lord, this Christ who does not get anxious at the rise of evil, but in fact determines it and uses it for his purposes, this Christ who was dead and is now alive and who has guaranteed the salvation of his people is the Christ who is returning. He is the Christ who's returning and he's the Christ whom we serve. So as the men come forward, let me pray and then afterwards they'll hand out the elements and Kathleen will pray. Use that time to just speak to him to make sure that your life is right before him. If you don't know him, now would be the time to Uh, Ask him to reveal himself to you, to repent, and to trust in him who is Lord of heaven and earth. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. I do pray that even as Paul prayed in Ephesians, as we read earlier, that our eyes would be enlightened to behold, O Christ, your glory, your inheritance in the saints. Help us who know you to have confidence in you, to rest Securely, not only in your sovereignty over the big events of history, but every detail of our lives. Help us not to be anxious. Help us not to be frightful, but to live with the confidence that the living one, 
the one who lives forevermore is the one in whom we live and in whom we have our own life. And for those who are outside you, who do not yet know your saving grace, we do again pray that they would know that they are not in a safe place and that they might run for refuge in you, O Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.